to this week's Arab Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest. My guest is Karim Zidane, an investigative journalist covering the intersection of sports, politics, and society. His work has appeared in The Guardian, Foreign Policy, Vox Media, Open Democracy, Deadspin, and HBO Real Sports, among others. Our conversation today is about sports washing, a game that the Gulf states are proving very adept at. Karim, Thank you for joining us on the Arab Digest podcast. Oh, it's my absolute pleasure, Bill. Thank you for having me. First of all, what is sports washing? What does it mean and how does it work? Here's the interesting thing about the term sports washing. When I first started writing about this intersection between sports and politics, the term didn't really exist. It was actually coined in 2018 by Amnesty International, one of the human rights organizations that was trying to sort of find a... uh, a clicky term that would describe countries that, uh, specific countries, generally authoritarian countries that host sports events or own uh, sports teams as a means for the country to improve its reputation. Particularly, again, this goes for authoritarian regimes if they have a poor record on human rights. Now, uh, easy examples of this would be China hosting the 2008 Olympic Games, or Azerbaijan hosting the 2019 UEFA Champions League final, Uh, Qatar owning Paris Saint-Germain. These are all quite clear-cut examples of sports washing in action. It's the attempt to sort of legitimize your regime and to sort of distract the average human being who might not necessarily always be thinking about politics, might have heard of this menace in the background. Say, uh, you, you might know that China has... Uh, an authoritarian style with its people. But if you see the Olympic Games being hosted, you as an average human being might be more partial to China afterwards. You might not think immediately that this is an attempt to distract, that this is manipulation in action. Instead, you will think, well, look at that. They might not be so bad after all. So that's sports washing in action. And again, whilst it's a new term, the act of it itself has long existed. I mean, I'm using examples dating back to 2008, and I can use examples dating far, far further back. A great example would be Germany hosting the uh, the Olympic Games prior to World War II. I mean, Hitler was involved in that. You want to talk about someone trying to legitimize his own campaign, he used sports to do so as well. So that is sports washing to a T. Okay, thank you for that. Now let's look at some of the sports washing that's going on that's attached to the Gulf states, countries with lots of cash and some pretty nasty reputations. You mentioned reputations. Can we start with Saudi Arabia and the attempt to buy Newcastle United Football Club, the Premiership Football Club? You know, it's a really, uh, this, this is honestly, uh, I find it to be a bit of a loaded question because it's quite complex. I'll take it step by step here. Is that Saudi Arabia, first of all, they started a few years ago with their Vision 2030 project. And these, all, these, all these mega projects that uh, basically are trying to wean the Saudi Arabian people and Saudi Arabia off of its dependence on oil and oil revenues. So part of that includes making Saudi Arabia sort of a tourism hub, an entertainment hub, an arts hub, a sports hub. They are investing to sort of build Saudi Arabia into what it never was before. Nobody ever thought, tour, you, couldn't, you couldn't get a tourist visa to go to Saudi Arabia before. It just wasn't a thing that happened. You either lived there or you worked there as an expat or I mean you're only going to see Mecca maybe to do the holy pilgrimage but you don't get tourist visas into Saudi Arabia so all that changed under Mohammed bin Salman and he tried to present himself as a reformer for his country and uh, made some very shallow changes within uh, Saudi Arabia sort of minimizing the 
the powers of say, the religious police. He didn't do it enough, but he did a bit of that. Uh, giving women the right to drive. The, the Western media ate it up and called him a reformer. He uh, arrested many, many, many uh, government officials, including actually several royal family members in an attempt to sort of crack down on corruption or what they claim was a crackdown on corruption. Now, all this was sort of one of the stages of, of uh, the Vision 2030 project in the sense that uh, Mohammed bin Salman was trying to alter the reputation of Saudi Arabia and present it as a changing society. What came after that was he established a long-term relationship with World Wrestling Entertainment. Yes, the WWE has a long-term deal with Saudi Arabia where they host multiple events there each year. PGA golf events have happened in Saudi Arabia. Just this year, the Dakar rally happened. And now we're talking about a Newcastle United bid. Now, for 300 million pounds, that's, that's a significant figure. It might not be for Saudi Arabia, but it's a significant takeover. It wouldn't be the first takeover we've seen in, uh, in football, but it's very significant now because the, the memory of the brutal butchering of Jamal, of Jamal Khashoggi still exists in the, in the back of our minds, or at least those of us who are active in the space and aware. I mean, even you, we cannot say that the, that uh, Washington Post op-ed writer Jamal Khashoggi was his butchering and the way he was killed and assassinated by the Saudi regime was not harmful to Saudi's reputation. That was that was a significant blow, but clearly not a strong enough blow to keep Saudi out of uh, out of these spaces anymore because I mean, whilst we saw organizations and countries sort of step away from Saudi Arabia for a few short months. I mean, I remember R. Emanuel's endeavor in the United States giving back Saudi Arabia money. And I mean, endeavor needs that money now more than ever, but uh, they gave back money that they had taken from Saudi Arabia so, just so that they don't have to work alongside Saudi Arabia. And R. Emanuel was so terrified about that. This is a Hollywood mogul we're talking about that he actually apparently walked around with bodyguards for multiple months. That's how scared he was of that. But that's Saudi Arabia to, the, to a T, and I, they are working on sort of repairing that damage, and Newcastle United is part of that repair. And here's the thing, we're seeing some conflict in the media, we're seeing, we're seeing reports saying that this, this cannot happen, this bit should not happen. I mean, The Guardian had published something very recently by Jamal Khashoggi's uh, fiance. I believe the title was, I'm doing a quick search here, the title is, The Saudi Regime Murdered My Fiance, It Cannot Be Allowed to Buy Newcastle United. Now that's a powerful, powerful headline right there. But is it enough to alter sports fans and how they view things? Well, for some, yes. Some see this as a moral dilemma and a difficult decision. Others, quite frankly, won't care. And that's where Saudi has its advantages, that human beings and sports fans are fickle. Politics itself is fickle. And there's always room for recovery. And that's what Saudi Arabia is relying on right now. All right. Well, let's move on to a couple more then. Uh, the United Arab Emirates and Qatar are engaged. You mentioned Qatar, Manchester City, uh, owned by Abu Dhabi, the, the Abu Dhabi ruling family. And of course, Qatar uh, owned own Paris Saint-Germain. Uh, so... Uh, and then there's the World Cup. I mean, that's a fair that's a fair chunk of football, isn't it? 
<laughs> Clearly, football being the most popular sport in the world means it comes with a, a lot of corruption and a lot of political uh, diplomacy and sports diplomacy in action through the sport. Unfortunately, that's what comes when you're the most popular sport in the world. Now, I'd, I'd, I'd like to take them separately because the UAE and Qatar, not only do they stand on opposite sides of the spectrum or in terms of the political uh, spectrum at least, but also they, they each have quite a few cases on their own. So the, so the UAE and really particularly Abu Dhabi is engaged in a lot of sports diplomacy and sports washing. So first of all, uh, the Abu Dhabi uh, government has signed a five-year agreement with, uh, with the UFC, the Ultimate Fighting Championship. UFC has this big plan. They were the first sport back during COVID and they had this big plan of hosting events on what they called a fight island. So it turned out this week, actually, uh, and on Wednesday, that that this fight island that they were speaking of is actually Yas Island in in Abu Dhabi. So Yas Island and Abu Dhabi is significantly involved with the UFC, and now. I think that this is a two-way street as well. This is an interesting form of sports washing because they're not just sports washing the government. It's not just sports washing to actively repair or its regime or distract from human rights abuses or distract from political disputes. Interestingly, this is also an attempt to reignite the economy because the UFC already played its role as a litmus test in the United States. And I know to a lot of people it's going to sound extremely strange for us to talk about cage fighting and combat sports as a litmus test to reigniting an economy. But unfortunately, this is the bizarre world we live in now, especially in Donald Trump's United States. He's a huge fan of combat sports. He actually placed Dana White, the UFC president, on an economic task force to do with the coronavirus virus and he was very excited when the UFC was able to host events and not have them you know end up with extreme amounts of coronavirus cases I believe there's only been one or two cases uh, of, of uh, fighters being tested for, for, uh, for or fighters testing positive for coronavirus in four or five events that they've hosted over the past few weeks which I have to admit is successful but what the United Arab Emirates is hoping to do right now, and especially Abu Dhabi, is to be able to reignite its economy. This is their litmus test. If, they, if the UFC can pull off these multiple events on Yas Island, then they should be able to slowly reintroduce factors into the economy. They should be able to quick, more, more, more quickly phase in the economy once again, which I, which I mean, knowing how Dubai is, knowing how Abu Dhabi is, they're going to struggle without their tourism, without their businesses running. I mean, these are financial and, and economic hubs in the country, and they, they have to be up and running. But that's just one example of the sports washing in, uh, in, in uh, the UAE, and particularly in Abu Dhabi. I mean, Abu Dhabi has the Formula One Grand Prix. Abu Dhabi owns not, I mean, City Football Group, which owns Manchester City, Melbourne City FC, uh, what else, New York City FC. They own multiple football clubs. Right? And apart from that, here's one of the first things they ever got involved in because of Sheikh Tahnoun was uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. They are seen as the, one of the international hubs for Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu outside of Brazil. They hold the ADCC Championships, which is the most prestigious championship in all of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. So for a very long time, uh, Abu Dhabi has led the, has led the, the path in sports washing and in sports diplomacy. Qatar, on the other hand, is a more recent. Qatar's, uh, and in Qatar's case, you hear less about the human rights uh, accusations than you hear about them harboring Islamic extremists. So them hosting the World Cup in 2022 
again, it's an attempt for it to strengthen itself. It's an attempt for it to be seen as a legitimate force and for it to take a, pay, a share of the pie that's generally been consumed by countries like Saudi Arabia, by the United Arab Emirates, and by, funny enough, Bahrain as well, which is a much smaller place but has also had an impact in these, in these uh, areas. Yeah, and the thing about Qatar as well is, is the migrant worker situation, and that has really been a damaging issue for them, hasn't it? Well, you know, the interesting thing about the migrant issue is had they not attempted to sports wash in the first place, they would have had less of a migrant issue. So the migrant issue is almost, it's not what they're trying to distract from. It was almost the result of their sports washing. Let me let me ask you about uh, another example of sports washing, which, which has to do with Morocco. And, and again, interestingly, the UFC pops up, doesn't it? Uh, what's the story there? Again, it's another sort of long and convoluted story. But yes, that you're right, though. The UFC does appear to be a major trend in all of these. UFC fighters do seem to be involved in many cases of political uh, diplomacy, sports diplomacy, and sports washing. Now, with the case of Morocco, yes, there were multiple UFC fighters, two in particular, Moroccan UFC fighters, who have built a phenomenal relationship with the king of Morocco. And through that relationship, they've sort of been elevated in society. And now that they've been elevated in society, they have become propagandists for the king of Morocco. So these two UFC fighters are Abu Bakr and Ottoman Azaitar. And they're fascinating fighters uh, as well. But to begin with, I'd like to explain what this case of sports washing is that's happening in, uh, in Morocco. Because it's one that I don't think many people are aware of. Because when they think of Morocco, they think, okay, there is no occupation happening in Morocco. You'd be wrong. Because Morocco is technically occupying the Western Sahara, or at least a portion of the Western Sahara. And to further understand this, you have to, under you have to know that Spain had occupied the Western Sahara in, uh, up until about 1975. So in 1975, 350,000 Moroccans marched into the Sahara to protest that occupation. And it was known as the Green March because people held Moroccan flags, green banners, and the Quran. And that's the, the green is the color of, of, or it's seen as the color of Islam. So it was this idea that we're coming in peacefully, and this is a peaceful protest. Eventually, Spain rescinded its claim to the desert, and that was by 1976. But what happened at that point, a notable dispute emerged, and that was between the, the Polisario Front, which was a Sahrawi nationalist liberation uh, movement, and the Moroccan Kingdom. So when Spain withdrew from the region in 1976, Morocco annexed the Western Sahara, while the Polisario Front established the Sahrawi Arab Democratic Republic. And of course, that leads to tension. They waged a 16-year war against Morocco, well, known as the Western Sahara War. And even though a ceasefire was reached in 1991, there continues to be and at the end of the day, it's occupied territory. So this leads us back to the case of sports washing now. So what, what uh, Morocco holds every year now is what they call the Green March celebration, which again remembers that, uh, that specific march in the desert, etc. So every year they hold a big football match and they bring in retired football players like Ronaldinho, uh, Meet, Egypt's Mido, Hagadiou from Senegal, all these renowned, renowned players. And so were multiple UFC fighters. Now these UFC fighters were brought in by the, the two UFC, the two Moroccan UFC fighters. So Abu Bakr actually is one of the people responsible for the Green March celebration. So he's responsible for putting on and organizing the events, for, for bringing in the important athletes, and sort of being one of the faces 
they not only get to be employed in the UFC, but because of their relationship with the Moroccan king, become elevated in society, have a voice and use that to sports wash. It's hard to imagine until you just you, you, you lay out the cards and you see what's happening in front of you. And you know what? Most of these people aren't very good at hiding it. You just go on their Instagram accounts and you'll see them waving the Moroccan flags in the desert. Now, to anyone, you, you, so people who don't know that, that Morocco is occupying the Western Sahara, you'd think, you'd look at that picture and you'd see, oh, He's proud of his country. He's proud to be Moroccan. But no, what it actually is is a statement. It's a statement saying, this land is ours, whether you like it or not. Now, now we, we have seen in the wake of the protests over the police killing of George Floyd, major sports leagues like the NFL coming out in support of taking a knee. Uh, some are going to argue that is hypocritical. But do you think that the Premier League will think more seriously in the current climate, about the Saudi bid for Newcastle United, do you think they will take on board what Hatice Chinguez said, that uh, the murder of her fiancé should not be involved in the purchase of a Premier League club? Do you think they will listen now? Uh, it might be the years that I've been reporting on things like this and not seeing enough change that makes me skeptical that change is imminent, to be honest with you, Will. And... That might be a bias on my part, because we, we could very well see it fall apart, but for multiple other reasons. If we see it fall apart, it would be on a technicality rather than due to a moral dilemma. Because unfortunately, money talks in these things. And to most sports fans still, to most sports fans, they refuse, and this is a position of privilege, they refuse to see the intersection between politics and all other aspects of their lives, including sports, because there is an absolute relation. And yes, I do believe the NFL is remarkably hypocritical to say now that they're interested in taking a knee and that they support black rights when they would when they barred Colin Kaepernick, the one black athlete who started this, who was taking a knee in the first place. I think it's absolutely pathetic. And the people who believe what the NFL are saying are part of the problem. Because you're allowing them to rewrite history. You're allowing this piece of hagiography to occur. Unfortunately, people are going to do the same thing exactly with Saudi Arabia. They're going to accept the apologies. They're going to still think that Mohammed bin Salman is a reformer. Some people will remember him as a butcher. Because he should be remembered as a butcher. He should be remembered as an awful leader. He should be remembered as one of the problems of Saudi Arabia. Not one of the benefits. But no, most people will say, well, look what, look what the Qatari takeover of Paris Saint-Germain did. Well, it became a great club. We got Zlatan afterwards. We did this. We succeeded at that. Look at Manchester City that was on a roll probably never seen before in Premier League history. That was due to the money injected into it. People will probably want to see the same thing, especially if you're a Newcastle fan. Yeah, it might bother you that it would be Saudi-owned, but time and time again, I have seen sports fans put aside, put aside important political problems just because it was either too unsavory for them or that they saw sports as sort of an escape for them. As long as you see sports as nothing more than an escape, it will continue to be infiltrated. There's so many examples everywhere that if people open their eyes and look at how sports is actually influencing their lives and the world around them and how it's manipulating them, I think that people will have a hugely different perspective on sports in society. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, it's a fascinating, fascinating area and one that you've done a, a lot of really original journalism on. So I thank you for... Uh, 
for sharing at least some of it with us. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to the Arab Digest podcast. My guest today was Karim Zidane, an investigative journalist covering the intersection of sports, politics, and society for a number of outlets, including The Guardian, Vox Media, and HBO Real Sports. We welcome your comments. If you're not already a member and you want to join the club, you can find out how by going to ArabDigest.org. And if you're a student or retired, we are now offering a new rate that amounts to a 70% discount. Check it out on ArabDigest.org. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest. Essential reading from independent sources.